This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Well, one thing we know about inflation is that it's getting a bit out of control. It's likely to exceed 11% in the UK. In Europe, latest numbers show it's already up to 8.6% and rising. It's about the same in the United States. In Australia, it's just 5.1%. But that was back in March. One common theme everywhere is it's going up. So central banks are officially in panic mode, pushing interest rates up as fast as they can. But what good will that do except for making poor people that much worse off and possibly unemployed? So isn't there a better way, particularly when it's not overconsumption driving inflation, it's a lack of supply. So today I asked Steve Keen, shouldn't we be tackling inflation with fiscal measures, not monetary policy? And what if we do nothing at all? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, central banks are committed to using monetary policy to solve the inflation problem we're seeing all over the world. The Fed's Jerome Powell, the governor of the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the United States, has said they have an unconditional commitment to fight inflation. So much so that when he was asked at a House committee hearing a couple of weeks ago what he'd do if interest rates rose and inflation didn't come down, what would they do? He said they'd keep on going. To keep on lifting it. So not even entertaining the idea that it might not be the right thing to do. Uh, they would just keep on doing it, even if it was the wrong thing. Is that is, So is that the right way to fight inflation, Steve? It seems like your head's stuck <laughs> in the, the sand, doesn't it? classical way. I mean, we, right. we, 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 we have... Even if we're things. wrong, we're going to keep doing it, damn it, till we can show just how wrong we are. Yep, um, that's, what, that's what is likely to happen. The bastards will get away with it, unfortunately, which is what really pisses me off about these things. Uh, they can you know, bring an economy to its, to its knees... Um, completely failed to warn about a serious crisis, and then they're back on the talk shows half a month, half a half a year later, um, because they're supposed to have wisdom about these things. Mm. So the OECD forecast for the UK next year uh, is zero GDP growth, inflation still over seven percent, unemployment still quite low as well, though, but four point three percent up from three point eight percent this year. So stagflation with jobs. Which, I mean, we are, I mean, has that ever happened before? These are unusual circumstances. I mean, normal stagflation normally means uh, people are out of work, but we've got lots of jobs. We've just got uh, very high inflation and, uh, and no uh, GDP growth. So this is, I mean, unusual times. That's, that's all the neoclassical forecast about the future. Let's not get carried away with the, with the forecast becoming reality. What we, what we need to do is backtrack and see why they think you can control inflation with interest rates. And, and that's and, th- and that's always been the fixation of neoclassicals going right back to the uh, 1800s because in there and, and this is where John Hicks played a, played a major role in in destroying the uh, the Keynesian revolution when it first happened because Keynes argued that what determines investment is your expectations of future profit 
And these are uncertain. So what you'll do is you rely upon current circumstances and extrapolate those forward. And, and therefore, uh, what is by far the most important determinant of your willingness to invest is your expectations of future profit. Now, what Hicks did is drag it back into the world, neoclassical world, where there's no uncertainty. Let's assume we know the future is a fairly typical neoclassical assumption. Um, but what, what, what they then did was, well, if you don't have uncertainty about profits because you know the future stream of profits from every investment, what can you vary? Aha, the interest rate. So the idea was putting up interest rate would reduce the investment because that was the only determinant you were left with. Um, and they therefore saw a high level of uh, de dependence upon of investment upon the interest rate. When you look at it empirically, that is not the case. But why do they no. want to get investment down? That doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. Oh, but the, 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 that, that's the old neoclassical. The new ones have generalised it and said it isn't just investment that's determined by the rate of interest, it's consumption. Mm. And they actually have a model in which you, before you go shopping, you take a look at the interest rate and that'll vary what you're going to buy because as well as going shopping for your current children, you're going shopping for the, you're, you're, you're considering what you're going to have as available as a bequest to your great, 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 great grandchildren, whom of course, you know, you, you know, you are planning with an infinite future. This is the typical rational person plans with an infinite horizon. And this, but is, but this is the shit they come out with. But isn't it more immediate than that? If interest rates are high, then I know that my mortgage is going to go, you know, for those people who've got a mortgage, my mortgage is going to go uh, up and therefore I've got less spent money to spend on other things. So that will that will hit demand. No, sorry, Dario. You can't bring the real world in here. Okay? But I mean, it, it, but that is... But it, but it, that is it, what I mean, will happen, yeah. Okay, because again... But I mean, that, so by yeah. default, isn't that, isn't, isn't that help? Because obviously all of this is about trying, we've got a... Uh, much higher demand than we've got supply right now. Mm. Uh, we've we've got to get the demand down to the level of supply so that we so prices moderate. And if you say, well, okay, we're going to jack up interest rates, you're going to have less money in your pocket because you're going to be spe spending most of your uh, of your income on your mortgage, and then that is going to uh, hit demand. It will hit demand. What, what I do find bizarre mm. is when people are saying, well, we can do this without having a hard landing because I mean, if you're going to hit yeah, demand it, down it, to the levels of supply, yeah. you, you you of course you're going to have a hard landing. It always is a hard landing um, because, mm. again, they, they, they see this stuff as like fine-tuning because they're looking at, you know, if you put up the interest rate, you reduce the net present value of future cash, cash flows and therefore you reduce the number of projects which are profitable so you have, a, you know, an attenuated decline in the investment given the rate of, in the rate of interest. Uh, the new business cycle uh, loonies, the real, real the, uh, the people in two, so-called rational expectations, which mean the capacity to accurately predict the future. That's the definition of rational. Um, they they generalise it to consumption, and therefore, you know, you, you fine-tune people's consumption demand today by varying the interest rate, what they call the Euler equation, which is an insult to a great mathematician. Um, but that what actually happens is you slam on the on, on the credit-based demand. Now they they think that credit there is no such thing as credit-based demand in their models because it's Steve lending to Phil. Steve can spend less, Phil can spend more, no net consumption, changing consumption. Unless Phil is a much more profligate speller than Steve, which we both know is not true. Um, uh, and, and, and therefore, what they do is they slam on a credit break without even realising that it's there. And that's why they crunch the economy so severely. Right. But I think they want to crunch the economy, don't they? Because they want to get that demand down. And I, lo I look at what it's doing to me. So I've got a... Um, a fairly hefty mortgage because I'm quite old, so the bank insists I pay it back fairly quickly. And it's you know, and I live mm -hmm. in Surrey, so you know, it, it's a big mortgage. Uh, I fortunately renegotiated a five-year term 
late last year before things started to go wrong, I look at how much it would cost me now for that mortgage. Guess how much more per month I would have to pay to meet you know the conditions if I was taking out that mortgage now uh, on a five year term. Have a figure. Have a guess how much more I'd be paying because because it would two thousand quid a month. No, not not two thousand quid more, but nine hundred pounds more per month extra. I, was gonna, I, I went for one. I thought I'd double it, but obviously I was better with me. But I mean, even so, that's nine thousand. So, so that has an impact, um, immediate impact. So uh, uh, even though I've you know I'm not paying that because. Uh, because I managed to negotiate a mortgage. What I am doing, though, is saying, right, I've got to overpay my mortgage. God, if this is around in five years when I have to renew my mortgage uh, term, mm. uh, I want to make sure that I've paid off as much capital in the meantime. So yeah. uh, so I'm overpaying the mortgage by a grand a month, uh, which is money that I could have been spending in the economy. If I hadn't done that and I you know, hadn't renegotiated, then I, you know, I wouldn't be overpaying. I'd still be down by a grand a month because I'd be paying the extra money uh, paying off my mortgage. So, and also what they're what they, what they, But what that's most of them. That's a big slug of income. So this is the real it's a big, effect. Big slug. Yeah, but it goes beyond that. Your thinking is about your micro level on that front, fair enough. But what, when you're paying that uh, principal off more rapidly, you're actually destroying money in the process mm. because to pay your principal off, your deposits go down and your loans go down. Yeah. But that actually means a reduction of the money supply. Now, the neoclassicals don't realise that. I gave a seminar of, with the Pakistan Institute mm. for Development Economics Last week. Uh, where I explained yeah. this basic logic that when you have if credit is positive, there's a boost to aggregate demand. If it's negative, there's a fall in aggregate demand. And they're not even aware that's what's happening. So when they... When they do something like put up interest rates and it does slam on people's purchasing and people do decide to pay their debt off, that reduces the money supply and it's negative for demand, one dollar for dollar for the reduction in the money, which otherwise would have been spent. So it, it, it tends to be that they, they, they think the car's going to drive smoothly and it's driving like you've got a, you know, a geriatric, uh, um, Mr. Magoo hitting the brakes and changing the gears badly—that's that's the situation. But isn't that what they're trying to achieve? They're, they're trying to—they're trying to cut down demand, aren't they? So by putting in—they are, but it, but but it won't necessarily hit the inflation this time around because they're seeing it as demand-driven inflation. And here again is where the theories lead them astray, because according to their theories, if you have a drop in demand, you'll have a drop in price. And it comes out of the fact that you're intersecting supply and demand curve and you drag the demand curve back, then the price level falls as well as the amount being consumed being falls. But when you look at actual firms making actual goods and ask them what are their cost structure like, the answer is their costs rise with falling output. Mm. So they're going to be squeezing the margins because you know, in the real world, the economic textbooks, fixed costs are incredibly important. They're, in mainstream theory, tends to think fixed costs are sort of 10% of the operating cost of a firm, They're actually closer to 40%. And then the variable costs fall with output, where the neoclassicals think they rise. So if you have falling output, your variable costs are going to rise as well. And that means that you're going to have a cost pressure on firms to put up their markups because they're going to lose out. They're right. going to have a higher cost of production. But if, they, so but the they, but if their input yeah. costs have risen so much because of the supply chain difficulties that we've got, then uh, you know that that variable cost is going to become a, a larger proportion. I understand what you're saying. If you, you know, mm. if you if you produce less of something, it becomes more expensive to produce each individual item, uh, and mm. so you've got to you know so you 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 get margin squeeze unless you push the prices up. So that's inflationary. But if a large chunk of your input costs are imports that have become so much more expensive from overseas because there's less of them produced then that that you know that you can't say well okay we need to keep producing more because we're getting more 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 efficient returns because you've got this big input cost 
So it's, it's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to this, but you... you know, oh, there there are, there are, but in fact, the, the, the moving parts, the, the, the moving parts that are affected by putting up interest rates alone are not the ones that economists think, think they are. Mm. They're not going to attenuate investment, they're not going to attenuate consumption, they're going to cause a collapse in credit, and that will cause a downturn. So, uh, and, and But the prices will continue rising because it's actually the, the cost of production side of things uh, which are being squeezed by all the supply chain issues and and rising cost of energy and so on. And, uh, and, and, and that will actually probably get worse. So they're going to put up interest rates and inflation is going to remain high. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, you look at, for example, the railways where f- fewer people are using the railways. So they've got less income coming in. Uh, and and some of that will be because people are working from home, and also some of it will be because they haven't got as much money to spend. But yeah, the cost of the railway is the same. It's it's a very high fixed cost, isn't it? So uh, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah. So if fewer people are using it, they're just got to put up the fares even more. Uh, to take your point to try and meet it. So what about all of this? Of course, stems from being fearful of CPI of of inflation. Uh, and we look at CPI uh, as the measure of that. And uh, how accurate is that? Because it's a it's an arbitrary basket of goods, isn't it? Which are uh, which are weighted. So transport, for example, in the UK accounts for eleven point one percent of the of the basket. But if if prices go up, like oil costs go up, then CPI is measuring the increase for that proportion of that basket. But if 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 oil goes up so much that it's you know accounting for a larger proportion of what my total expenditure is, then uh, it's been constrained in the CPI measure because they're saying, well, no, it's it's only ever, transport is only 11.1% of the basket of currencies. You see what I mean? It's, it's And you've got to measure it somehow. You've got to put some some sort of delineation on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing is that CPI is based on the idea of, a, of a, the, the, the average consumption basket, the average consumer. Yeah, but that changes all okay. the time. And, you, and you're trying, yeah, well, to, they're, you're they're, trying they're, to do a linear they're, tracking of yeah. something which changes depending on what you bought that year. Yeah, but also because we've had such a, you know, we talked about last week about the impact of globalisation and the, the benefit for workers who lost their jobs is that the goods are cheaper at the same time. Mm. But if you have this sort of decline, um, then you what you're going to have is the goods that workers used to be able to buy, they can no longer buy, and you're going to change that actual basket. So if you find oil prices become prohibitive for people and they're going to, as much as they hate the bus, they're going to go for the bus instead, um, then oil ceases being part of the consumption set. So you're going to be measuring a higher level of inflation that is actually experienced by people out of their out of their pockets. But the reality is their income, their standard of living is being reduced because goods they used to be able to, uh, able to afford, they can't afford anymore. Yeah. I just wonder whether it's just a, a flawed, and I don't know what the alternative is, but if you're, if you're tracking something by tracking a whole load of goods that may or may not be bought, and then you change them each year. So, for example, uh, men's suits have been removed from the basket this year because uh, we all spend so much time on Zoom, so we're buying less suits. Uh, laminate flooring has been removed because, well, it's distasteful, frankly. should have gone years ago, shouldn't it? Uh, replica football team shirts are staying in. What? Uh, the oh my god f- the fees to hire a nanny uh, and hopefully not related to that the price of condoms is uh, is also <laughs> and, uh, Good one. Good and, the, one. and the cost of getting a washing machine repaired I mean it all seems very arbitrary doesn't it well it's arbitrary but it's based on a survey of what people actually spend their money on and you've got a, you're in a football mad part of the world so it's not amazing that football shirts are part of the consumption pattern but if they become prohibitively expensive then you'll be going to you know, in plain t-shirts 
to uh, to their football matches and it'll drop off the off the spectrum. Right, so that's how we can tell in Surrey when there's fewer nannies around. We know the economy is in a bad way, and if you're going to watch and less of them are pregnant, and, and, yeah, actually more of them more of them are pregnant. <laughs> that's right. Uh, condoms are too and expensive. You, oh and, and if you go to Manchester United and they're all in plain shirts, then we really, I mean, that, things are really bad in that case, aren't they? <clears throat> Yeah, but it comes back to what is actually causing the inflation. And this is where, you know, throw the neoclassical textbook out the window. Prefer to open it, first of all, because the glass is important, uh, but throw it out the window. What, what do you, if you, you, Koleski did the best work in saying, what are the overall pressures that determine prices? And he finally broke it down into three factors. And you can drive this from first principles about how prices are set. It's fundamentally the markup you make on what you have to buy as your external inputs. Your, your time and, and, and material cost in production itself, um, and this proportion of output that goes, that goes to workers, and which are the main ex- external cost of, of, the, of, of the capitalist classes paying for workers, obviously. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, you've got your cost of production, a, a markup, and the bargaining capacity of your input suppliers, which predominantly are workers, but also raw material uh, suppliers and so on, so stuff outside the manufacturing sector. So what we had, what we had in the past, this is the nineteen seventies inflation that, that gave the neoclassicals the upper upper hand in the um, uh, in in the battle over the ideology of economics. That was a period with extremely high credit demand. So people, you know, again, you have to be a Minskian to look at this, but if you take a look at the period 1971 to 73, 74, there was a huge credit bubble, and then it burst. Now, one of the reasons it burst was an increase in wage uh, demands because of high, un- high, low unemployment, and an increase in oil costs because of the Yom Kippur War and the, and the first of the OPEC uh, oil price squeezes. And what that meant was two of the four, two of the three factors that Kolesky talked about changed. You had an increase in the cost for inputs. Actually, one of that was the increase in the cost of the inputs. Mm. But you you had the flexibility for the monetary system to expand and accommodate that uh, because of the uh, endogenous nature of money. So the price, the increase in wage cost and and, and um, raw materials costs were passed on. To consumers, the markup was not reduced, and there was no restraint in supply. So it was a it was a yeah. it was a cost question. But if if the demand was there, yeah. you could still meet that with with supply. Yeah. The problem we've got, now, the problem we've got now is we haven't got the yeah. we can't meet those supplies because there's just yeah, not the enough right, of, so, yeah. of the inputs. Yeah, so, so the, 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 the you know, output per worker, output per you know, externally purchased output is falling. Mm. And in that case, if you want to maintain the same price level, then either you're uh, looking at the main external cost that the, um, the industrial sector has, which is workers, uh, in terms of capitalist versus workers. Workers have got to have lower wage demands or firms have to drop their markups. Yeah. Now... Um, uh, what we're what we're we're seeing wage demands being well below inflation, so it's actually the only thing we can actually play with in that sense is the markups the firms charge. Now, if you try persuading them to drop their markups when they've got falling revenue, good luck. So, in, in that sense, I think we're going to see a continuation of the inflation despite the fall in demand and despite higher interest. Right, rates. so we get a downward uh, spiral happening there. In other words, don't we? Because if we've got so the the cost of uh, so output is being reduced because there's less supply. The cost per unit is is increasing because there's less supply, uh, and that is meaning there's a, there's a spiral because there's less demand because of the rising prices. Plus the fact people are, have got less money coming in because they're not seeing their wages go up quite so much, so therefore they demand less. So we've got we've got less demand, 
and less supply, which is what the, the central bank is aiming for. But of course, companies are seeing that that is just being less output uh, and having to recover margins. So that so that so that cycle continues. Yeah, and you don't you you find the interest rate rise will will crash demand, but it won't it won't crash the cost of production. And it's the cost of production that is mainly putting up prices right, right. now. So we're still going to have inflation. Yeah, I think so. And I think this is why you know you you need to think something outside the interest rate boundaries. Now, if you go back to um, the uh, Australia in the 1980s, when I was working in the, what was called the Accord. Um, section of the of the Labor government at the time, um, that was a was, it was it was done the intention of the accord, and I, I was I did a minor a bit of work in helping draft the original accord documents. The intention was to go for a sort of Scandinavian industrial policy approach and to get a, a compact, a social compact between workers uh, and 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 uh, and firms. Uh, as part of that as well, but it got turned into what was called the Prices and Incomes Accord, and then in that situation, the workers gave away wage rises in return for uh, increasing amounts of superannuation uh, or you know, pension payments, effectively. Um, but the uh, the idea was you tr- you used the. A, a sort of social compact to try to bring down the rate of inflation, not interest rates on their own. And in that extent, it, that side of the Wages and Incomes Accord did work. You took the inflationary sting out of the system. Uh, but that's because you could persuade the workers not to put up the same wage demands. Uh, now, it, that's not the problem this time. The wage demands are lower than inflation. So you, you have a real you know, potentially social problem coming away that keeps up because people, you know, and the lower wage earners are certainly suffering at current prices, but they're the ones who are facing the largest increase in prices and they can't put their uh, their uh, their wages up. So um, you know, it, it's not the 1970s. No, it's not. So I've, imagine I've got a, uh, a, a record label where, where I'm still selling just one record. It's Tom Jones's Greatest Hits. And it's printed. I have it printed uh, on a press in China, and it's shipped over here. And then I've got twenty salespeople who go around uh, flogging it through department stores and the like. Uh, if I find that um, I'm not getting as many pressings of Tom Jones's greatest hits, but he's still enormously popular, um, I'm just trying to see how that how that works out in that model. So my people going around the stores still want to get paid the same wage. So I've still got that cost. I've still got the... I, I'm paying less per unit for those uh, for those pressings, or I'm paying the same per unit, or slightly more for those pressings because of the cost of getting it out here. But I've got far less of them than is being demanded by the public. So I would say, well, okay, I, I can only satisfy the market with half of the Tom Jones records that are demanded, so I'm going to put up the price considerably to try and... Uh, because I can, because the demand is so much greater than what I'm able to supply. So what? Well, the demand remains there, but this, this is the trouble. We'd like to see a crunch. Oh, Tom in Jones, demand. Tom Jones. There's always going to be demand for Tom Jones. Yeah, but <laughs> always. I mean, he's lasted this long. Well, I mean, what's going to change? Does but so I mean, but, I was you, wondering why he chose Tom Jones. Oh, it's just, yeah. it's just an example of something that's gone on forever. Uh, but mm. um, I do, you know, when we're looking at uh, longitudinal studies, Steve, it seemed like a good one to choose. Uh, I don't know why. Mm. I just came off the top of my head. But I mean, it, but that would be an example, wouldn't it, of where actually, you know, I'm able to get get a. A greater margin because of uh, because of scarcity. So long as you have the scarcity, this is the thing I think we're likely to see a crunch in aggregate demand coming out of this. A much sharper rise in unemployment uh, than than the um, 
than the Federal Reserve is expecting. They think What they think they're doing is taking inflationary expectations out of the world. And this is, again, where their model leads them astray because, according to them, what causes rising inflation are expectations of rising inflation. So because we expect prices to go up, that's why we put prices up. So cut the expectation, inflation will fall. There's nothing in that about the cost of production. Okay? And in the real world, of course, it's the cost of production which is becoming the issue now. A rising cost of production uh, means you're either going to have, have falling uh, wages, falling uh, markup by firms, or rising prices. Right. And this is what we're likely to see. It's, it's a new form of stagflation. Right. So in my example, uh, people are not going to pay more for Tom Jones records because they can't afford it because of the expectation of inflation. I'm still and, and I'm selling less, but I've still got my sales force on the road that I'm paying. So and your costs have gone up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all all makes sense. Sorry about that for people hanging out for their Tom's Tom Jones's record. So the um, so the Reserve Bank obviously is trying to cut demand through monetary policy. The government is trying to prop up income for some people. So for example, by subsidising fuel bills. So we're left with this situation, aren't we? So even if the uh, even if they were taking the right approach with their monetary policy by trying to subdue demand the government is working against them you know the well i think i think there's something that's necessary because uh, I mean, yeah because people need to be able to, we don't want people to freeze to death yeah for i mean sure. if you get literally in the uk you have got people who are facing the thought of freezing to death but they can't afford the electricity bills to heat their houses during winter and we all know that uk houses have got the world's worst insulation on the planet with the possible exception of australian houses um so so you're going to freeze to death unless you can pay those bills but doesn't that show state subsidies what, even if you know even if we believed it would work doesn't it show what a blunt instrument monetary policy is that you oh, very much so yeah it is it, 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 is not the it is not the smooth fine tuning. You're not fine tuning level of investment for reducing uh, the net present value of a known stream of of, um, of uh, in, in income from your current investments. You're not fine tuning consumption. People don't think of what they've got to leave for their 37th gener- uh, generation descendants to pay taxes, which is part of the nonsense of the Euler equation. In the real world, you slam on credit, and in this particular circumstance where there's uh, rising supply costs rising production costs, then you actually make those worse because by reducing the volume partially by the credit crunch, you you even increase per unit prices even more. And that means that firms are going to have to either wear a, a lower markup, which they will to some extent, or they put their prices up. So isn't a more nuanced approach to do to deal with this by taxation, by who we tax? So if the because obviously the, the highest consumers, the highest uh, demand is coming from the richest consumers. So whereas the people at the bottom end, the people who are struggling to, uh, to, to heat their house, can't we, uh, and you know, people will be used to this on a progressive podcast like this, can't we tax the rich, not tax the poor, <laughs> and then if, there's, uh, if, if companies that need support or need to pay less tax because they've got rising production costs, tax them less? I mean, can't we, rather than this blunt instrument, why don't we all do it through, through even if it's just temporary taxation? And say, well, okay, for the next year, this is the way yeah, it is. Well, I don't think taxation is the solution. You're not, you're not going to use the tax from the rich to pay for the goods for the poor. Okay, that's that's the accounting error that I'm going to be addressed in my Minsky modelling, and the modern monetary theory does as well. Taxation is redistribution. It's not it's not financing government expenditure. So if you want to spend um, on the poor. Then another way to go about that is to say, okay, here's the, the subsidy we're going to be creating, mm. which puts money in people's bank accounts, and then you sell bonds to the rich. 
and the bonds take the money out of circulation that way. Um, you, and you try to reduce, uh, reduce demand by encouraging people out of uh, actual consumption into, into buying financial instruments. Not that that's, and I'm not going to rave about that as a potential anti-inflationary policy, but it's what you do uh, if you were using more government spending to reduce the amount of money left in the system. One way to do that is to sell bonds. Right, which is a bit like you know what I was describing before. Not that I consider myself rich, but I'm not poor either. But the idea that you know, faced with this idea that I'm going to have to uh, pay more for my mortgage in five years' time if things haven't improved, so the answer is, well, okay, I'm going to I'm going to spend more on my uh, on paying off my mortgage. If I didn't have that situation and you said, well, okay, what about buying bonds? They're going to give you a good return. Why don't you do that rather than buying stuff at inflated prices? Yeah, you'd probably go down the bond road, wouldn't you? Mm, yeah, yeah. Makes a great deal of sense. What about those people who are saying, you know, lots of, lots of this is down to money printing? Because government spent, and this is, this is becoming more common, isn't it, this argument? You know, the government spent through the pandemic. That's the, what's creating inflation, and uh, the only way we can resolve it is to get the supply down. So the, you know, we, we, so the M2 money supply in the UK is now over three trillion pounds. Uh, I think it was uh, t- ten years ago. It was it was two trillion. So it's growing by fifty percent. Uh, so people are saying, well, that's what you know. That's what the cause of inflation was, even though it wasn't causing inflation uh, <laughs> a few years ago before the pandemic. But I mean, when you do, when you are increasing the money supply by that, that that amount, I mean, that must have some consequences, doesn't it? Well, yeah. You know, my analogy about this is actually is is rising money supply pushing prices up. Or is rising money supply leaving room for prices to rise? There is a difference because if you look at the Milton Friedman way of thinking about this, simply a monetary modern, the monetarist as opposed to modern monetary theory argument, that basically says inflation is uh, too much money chasing too few goods, and they blame the whole thing on the increase in the money supply, as if the government is the only part of the world of the economy creating the money supply. Now, we, you know, in the real world, we know banks create money as well. So when you look at it in that sense and say the money supply is not controlled by the government, it's an endogenous factor in the economy, the government contributes to it, but it's by no means the major determinant of the money supply. What you get instead is the money supply not, not as a floor pushing up, but a ceiling above you. And if you have an increase in, like we did back in the 70s, when there was a, a fourfold increase in oil prices, then firms access their lines of credit to pay that increase in the oil price, and the money supply rose. So the causation goes from prices to money, not money to prices. Mm. Interesting. So how do we how do we get out of this situation that we find ourselves in now? What is the answer to controlling inflation when you've got a, an, a, an unusual circumstance where it is supply chains and lack of supply rather than pushing for wages uh, or, or you know or necessarily a, a, an increase in commodities like oil? I mean that's part of it, but it's largely supply driven. Uh, uh, in inflation that we're seeing now. How do you tackle that? Well, that's the thing. Maybe you can't because you know, we've had a, a period of in, 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 a very unusual period of, uh, in, in terms of uh, under a, a regime of uh, flexible money supply, uh, a very unusual period of, uh, of declining cost because of globalization. That's going into reverse. Um, we we and. In, in, and we're also we've been massively over-consuming the planet. That's got to go and reverse. The energy cost of producing stuff is rising. The quality of minerals you're working with, that energy to turn into goods is falling. Uh, all this crunch time, you're seeing just an increase in the cost of production. And that fundamentally means we can't be as wealthy as we once were. That's that's really what it comes down to, I think, that this is um, the, 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 the 
you know, the, the neoclassical fantasy of ever-rising living standards on a finite planet uh, is coming to a crunch. Well, Britain's getting very used to that, of course, perhaps more than uh, other parts of the world. I mean, that's become accepted that living standards aren't, aren't improving and for lots of people they're getting worse. So are you saying that mm. the answer to all of this is that central banks and governments should do nothing? Because no, if they do anything, they're just going to make it worse. Not so much to do nothing, but the gov- there should be more. The, the, the government has to make sure, and this is again the income distribution mm-hmm. thing, again, that the poor aren't going to be freezing to death in the UK and starving to death elsewhere in the world. Uh, you cannot have a social system where uh, the, the people at the bottom uh, aren't able to survive. You can have a small number of, of deaths that come out of this, but not one where you start getting systemic levels of, uh, of, of deprivation and, and, uh, and death and poverty. So the government's got to spend more on buying basic commodities. You know, it has to underwrite the cost of energy for a start so the poor can, can still pay uh, their electricity bills to keep their houses heated during winter. That's going to become essential. And that means an increase in, in, in fiscal spending uh, to make that possible. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to be seeing a decline in living standards. And the only way to make that sustainable over the long term is the rich have to wear it rather than the poor, uh, which is where you might try your taxation. But again, um, that... you know. This is a wake-up call for the fact that we've overshot the boundaries of the planet. And, and, that, and in that sense, you've got to go backwards in, in wealth terms, and that will have manifestations in your price dynamics. You're going to have incomes that are stagnant and prices going up more rapidly than incomes. And I think that's un, unavoidable for some substantial time. So do nothing. Apart from uh, you know, that, that, that exercise in making sure that we are distributing income effectively, doing nothing. Which is interesting because I've spoken to a neoclassic economist who's uh, who's given almost the same answer. So there's one thing you do agree on that probably the oh my god, who was that? Oh, it was. <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but it's but it um, <laughs> more than my job's worth. But it's but it, it is interesting that you know maybe you can come at this from different angles and come to the same conclusion that actually we can't interfere with this. It's it's happened. Uh, and uh, it, it's not something central banks can control. Of course, governments love the idea that central banks might try and control it because it gets them off the hook, doesn't it? Because price stability is the job of the that central is, bank. Nothing is, to do with the government. So we uh, we elect people to run the economy, but uh, we really don't have responsibility for managing the, co- the economy, just government spending. It's central banks. So if it all goes wrong, it's their fault. And, and that was the major reason why so many countries went for so-called central bank independence when it was first put put forward back in the 70s because, oh, yeah, we can outsource having to make the ugly announcement of putting up interest rates and give it to a bunch yeah. of people actually think that's a, that's a good thing to do. So uh, there, was a, there was a huge factor in, in, in governments agreeing to hand that power over to central banks. But what it meant was central banks also thought that this was the, the only way to manage inflation and control it was the interest rate, and they were the experts, and so now they're going to find it the hard way that they're not. Mm. Yeah, well, maybe, they, maybe they're starting to. I mean, I, I wonder whether the Bank of England is actually going to calm down quite a bit because the UK economy is slowing down quite so much and they're worried about if they you know if they do too much what are they and they'll be forced they'll, they'll, they'll go in reverse direction when you find the economy is falling over and the stock market collapsing as well then they're going to reverse those interest rate rises yeah well the, the stock market's been loving it lately for some peculiar reason uh, known only to them uh, well it's something to do with making money isn't it it's you know it's, <laughs> I'm sure that's the, the root of it all uh, good to talk Steve uh, we'll catch you again next week thanks
Okay, mate. Bye. It does seem textbooks are being torn apart and rewritten this year, doesn't it? As uh, all the evidence of old ways are disproved uh, during this crisis that we're going through right now. That's it for the Debunking Economics podcast for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve Keen again next week. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.